This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Hi everybody, um, <clears throat> I'm Dave Strugnell. Um, it is uh, my great privilege to be chairing this session. Uh, I'm super excited about it, not only because the topic of really unlocking the value of advanced analytics inside organizations is one that's very close to my heart, um, but also because of the presenters, Umar Begas and Rais Mahmoud, who not so many years ago were um, sitting in a UCT lecture class listening to me talk, so it's, uh, it's delightful to you know, have the shoe on the other foot and for me to be able to sit down and, uh, and learn a little bit from them. Uh, Umar and Rais are both with, uh, with McKinsey. Um, both involved in uh, work very closely related to the, the topic of uh, today's session. Um, and uh, I will let them give uh, more detailed introductions to themselves, but would you please uh, welcome Umar and Reis. Hi, everybody. So, as Dave said, my name is Umar Bagas. I'm a partner in our Johannesburg office. I lead our insurance, practices, I lead our insurance and analytics practices uh, in Africa, and I've been doing all kinds of interesting analytics work with banks and insurers across Africa, Middle East, and Europe. Hello, everyone. My name is Rais Mahmoud. Uh, I'm an associate partner from our uh, McKinsey London office. Um, do most of our work in, in, in insurance and banking clients across Europe and Africa, and very excited to be talking to you about this topic that's very close uh, to, what, to what I enjoy. Thanks, Rais. So, First topic or first point we wanted to make was around what's the excitement with advanced analytics and why now? And we've we we see this as a as the convergence of three trends, right? So the ex absolute explosion of the the data that's available on customers for analytics, the drastic decline in the cost of storing and processing that data, and then of course the mathematics to actually handle and process all of this data. So from as early as the 80s, of course, insurers had access to basic demographic information. If you had some kind of a banking relationship, you had transaction data as well. To the mid-90s, where uh, insurers started storing and logging a lot of the interactions with their customers through call centers and, and from the agents and RMs. To a world today where you've got access to social media data, uh, app user data, health and activi human activity data through connected devices. So there's been an absolute explosion in the amount and type of data we've got access to on customers. At the same time, the cost of storing that data, as I mentioned, has drastically reduced. Uh, in the year 1995, the, the average cost of storing about a gigabyte of data was $279. Ten years later, in 2005, that's, to store that same gigabyte of data costs 79 cents to the dollar, right? And today, it's significantly less. Around about 2005 is when the internet reached a billion users as well, right? So it's kind of these, these moments in time, where, you know, they were colliding, and this is what, what was bringing everything about. In 2010, for example, we were, uh, when Google and Microsoft launched, launched their cloud services, uh, that's when we hit a rate of across uh, internet user data, storing or generating about one ex uh, 20 exabytes of data. That's 20 billion gigabytes of data uh, per month. 
globally, right? and today that's probably doubled. So this huge explosion of data availability and types of data and being able to, uh, to store and process this data collided. At the same time, the mathematics has been evolving. So the, the mathematics has actually been around for longer. So as early as the 50s, we were already talking about artificial intelligence. Uh, in the 90s, or actually in the 80s, um, convolutional neural networks for image processing were already being developed. Uh, support vector machines uh, for natural language processing emerged in the 90s as well. So these things have been around for a while, but we just didn't have the data and the variety of data uh, and, the, and, and the ability to store and process them efficiently and cost-effectively. And now this has converged. To say a little bit more about the data, so when we talk about big data, what do we actually mean? So of course there's the sheer volume of data and the variety of structured, unstructured data. Uh, and the speed, the velocity at which that data has been coming in has drastically been increasing. But this introduces new interesting challenges to, uh, to data users, to statisticians, actuaries, data scientists especially. Because now you've got new kinds of errors and issues you need to look out for in your data. And in fact, there's a whole field around uh, modeling and predicting the kind of errors and issues uh, you have in your data and how to fix them. Um, then to say a little bit about the mathematics. So this is a video we use internally to help people kind of structure the debate and to think about what kind of analytics can you do. Um, so it might be a bit foundational for some of you if you've been doing a lot of work in this space, but um, it's a nice way to kind of structure how to think about it. Though this may look like a step stool, we'll call it analytics. As you can see, analytics allows you to take a step up from where you are and get a slightly different perspective on the business landscape. Though there's some value in this perspective, regular analytics are more about hindsight and the data you've already collected than they are about what lies above and beyond. To reach these even higher places and achieve business outcomes that go beyond what was previously thought of as the ceiling, you're going to need a better tool. And fortunately, we have just that, what many people both inside and outside of McKinsey are calling the value ladder of advanced analytics. Unlike regular analytics, which have been around as long as the step stool, advanced analytics are a fairly recent development, thanks to things like cloud computing and sophisticated algorithms that interpret large sets of structured and unstructured data. Advanced analytics are helping savvy leaders better understand, predict, and optimize their business outcomes. And this is happening in pretty much every industry imaginable. Unfortunately though, because advanced analytics implies complexity, and because it's often used as a buzzword, there's still a lot of misunderstanding surrounding the term. Hopefully, this video will help you not only understand what the ladder of advanced analytics looks like, but demonstrate how it can be used to reach business value that was previously thought unattainable. And of course, we'll also touch on some of the dangers of misusing such a powerful tool. But let's start by taking a closer look at the ladder itself. As you can see, there are three distinct rungs of advanced analytics. Descriptive analytics, predictive analytics, and prescriptive analytics. Though each of the three types of advanced analytics revolves around using algorithms to interpret data, there are fundamental differences between each rung. Differences in purpose as well as different types of required data and algorithms. Put simply, at each stage of your ascent, you use different models and techniques to ask different business questions. For example, at the descriptive rung of the advanced analytics ladder, as the name implies, you're trying to describe relationships and draw conclusions from your data. Common business questions at this point might be, what exactly is the problem? How many, how often, where, and what happened? 
The answers will likely be found using algorithms that fall under the umbrella of data mining and inferential statistics, like these here. For example, k-means clustering helps identify the 10 customer segments among millions of your customers. In other words, the rung of descriptive analytics has helped you reach a better understanding of your data and business. That said, even with this new understanding, you're still not much higher than you would have been on that old step stool. And it doesn't matter that many businesses are happy to stop here. You want to go higher. So you take a step up to predictive analytics. Building on the foundation of descriptive analytics, the predictive rung is focused on forecasting how values might evolve based on patterns found in data. So, instead of looking down and studying where you just came from, you're now looking forward and trying to predict with confidence what might come and asking questions such as, what could happen next? What if these trends continue? What are the possible outcomes? And are my decisions based on good data? To answer these questions, data scientists use common predictive analytics techniques like regression-based algorithms, machine learning, and discrete choice models. Now that you have a strong understanding of possible outcomes, you're ready to step up to the highest rung on the value ladder, prescriptive analytics. It is here where data scientists practice the art of optimization and ask questions such as, how should I allocate my sales team? What kind of safety stock should I maintain? And how can we achieve the profit-maximizing outcome? Through simulation and techniques like evolutionary algorithms, integer optimization, collaborative filtering, and Monte Carlo, businesses are now able to answer some of these big questions and as a result, reach heights of unprecedented success. In other words, it's pretty clear to see that the ladder of advanced analytics provides much more value than that old step stool. Of course, just like with any ladder, you have to use advanced analytics carefully. The first thing to keep in mind is that you typically can't miss any steps or tackle more than one step at a time. Moreover, the order of the steps doesn't change, as each dataset and group of algorithms is dependent on discoveries made on the rung below it. Simply put, you can't start focusing on what's above you until you know you're standing on solid ground. It's always one, two, three. Okay, I'm trying to stop it there. Um, so, as you can see, these, these are kind of, this is a way to think about the different types of analytics you can use and where the different techniques fit in. And this is a debate across industries. Of course, in the insurance world, we're quite sophi relatively sophisticated users of the data we have available. Uh, but this, as we'll see today, we'll show some examples of how we can take this a few steps further. Uh, but that doesn't say that you know, outside of the insurance world, there's certainly a, a role for actuaries, uh, for actuaries to play as well, because we've got those data skills, uh, but do need to sharpen them in, sh in certain ways and need to think a bit differently. And we'll touch on that uh, today as well. Um, for those who are less familiar, one example I like to use to explain what machine learning is all about is, is, is the one on the screen. So if we could simplify the world into just two variables, right, and let's say we've got some kind of uh, underwriting problem, of course, the, even in a, in a two-variable world, uh, the world is still not linear, it's still complicated, it's still complex, and it's disorganized, right? So what we often do as actuaries is we try to simplify that with a statistical model or table-based approach, and we're therefore constrained by the mathematical constraints of the techniques we're using, right? So we would typically, in this underwriting problem, focus on the green area, which is in the bottom right-hand side. But often then we're missing healthy or good risks who would otherwise be underwritten. Right? And what machine learning allows us to do is to step outside with the different techniques available, we could step out of being constrained by those 
mathematical functions and actually uh, find new interesting um, types of customers and, and underwriting cases. So having worked with a number of insurers on this topic, there are a couple of themes we've identified. So typically, most insurers are sitting at this first step, right? So they're actuaries, and they've, some, uh, they've, in many cases, hired statisticians or computer science and mathematics graduates as data scientists. Um, and they've started implementing a few advanced analytics use cases. Most common we see is cross-selling, churn prevention, and of course, uh, pricing. And in, mo in many cases, more and more, they've already set up some kind of data lake uh, where data from different sources are being combined, in, and in some cases, even from different business units uh, within the necessary licensing constraints, of course. Um, but how we take that to the next step and actually capture value at scale uh, as insurers, um, often involves setting up what we call an, an analytic center of excellence, where you're setting up cross-functional teams, so data scientists, actuaries, data engineers, but also business people, people who interact with customers and who actually understand the dynamics of uh, how the customer is thinking and what drives their behavior, and combining that uh, into these kind of cross-functional teams, working in an agile way to develop these solutions much faster and, and, and go to market much sooner. And that sort of having, setting up this unit creates a bit of momentum where you can actually at scale start churning out these, these models. Um, and that takes us one step closer to um, achieving a space where the integration uh, and the automation is auto almost automatic uh, to a world where you're, you're, you've got an analytics-driven organization. So an example I like to use of an analytics-driven organization is Netflix. Um, so, of course, for those of us who are Netflix users, by now you must have realized they've got a crap load of data on every user, right? Uh, they know what you're watching, the types of series you're watching, what you're searching, what you're starting to watch and stopping and never going back, when you're pausing to go to the, probably to go get some food or go to the bathroom, and it's all that data that they're using because uh, when you've paused a video or a, a movie or an episode of something that you're watching, that's probably a moment where you got a little bored, right? So now they know what to cut out of their material, and all of this data is being used to inform the next set of material and series and investments that they're making. So that's that's an example of an organization that has analytics and data in their DNA. Back to insurance, though. Uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I was about to say. So bringing it a little bit back home to insurance again, um, when we look at insurers globally, um, we see many of them starting to capture value on specific use cases. Um, and this is a little bit of our scan of what are the 17 or so use cases across the insurance value chain that uh, insurers are, are, are prioritizing. So there's one family that's focusing on you know, distribution, sales, and marketing. And this is quite often the first place many insurance companies go. Because this touches on the customer, talks about sales. Here you have use cases such as cross-selling. So I've got an existing customer. What's the next best action or product I should offer them? We talk about retention as well. So you always hear the, the discussion around a new customer costs a lot more than retain, retaining your existing customers. So thinking about how do we best manage retention and inform agents about the uh, customers that are most at risk. Um, so that's typically the first you know, bucket of families we see, uh, of, of use cases we see. The second one is around underwriting and pricing. Um, and quite often, it hits straight home at the underwriting point. So how do we move from a form of 40, 50 plus variables to instant underwriting, or at least a, a much simplified underwriting experience as you're applying for that policy? 
Um, what about you know pricing? So if we think about our different customer groups, risk profiles, how do we more accurately identify good risks and better price? Um, uh, and, uh, and thinking about also over time, if you think about renewals, how do we think about how, how should that pricing change? And then the last piece, which is a bit later on in the value chain, I guess talking about claims. So thinking about, firstly, how do I prevent claims? So we see all this innovation in telematics now, uh, helping to prevent claims, all the way down to the point of when a claim has occurred, how, what, what do I do? how do I best manage it? How do I route the claim to the relevant specialist team to deal with it to minimize, one, cost, and two, uh, the time to actually settle the claim? Um, and what you see in terms of impact here is actual impact we've observed at uh, different insurance companies globally. So insurers are capturing uh, value across these. I think there's a bit of a push to actually see how you do that more at scale, because quite often it's individual use cases here and there. So talking a bit more to uh, Umar's uh, point he just made. Um, we'll go into a bit more detail on a couple of these in a little bit. Um, but just before we, we do that, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about how we see insurers capturing this value. So on the one hand, you've got the data, the analytics, the modeling, that, that's a critical part of the an, an analytics um, use case and, and capturing the value. But for what we see, typically you need to adopt a much more end-to-end -end holistic approach. So going beyond the data and modeling and really starting to think about this latter part of, of what we call the galaxy chart. So how do you actually take the recommendations from the modeling integrated into the day-to-day -day work of the company, the agents, how do you actually get the recommendations out there from the modeling, and then how do you drive adoption? Um, so how do you develop the right capabilities, the right, uh, change the culture to focus on these recommendations coming from, from the models? And I think this is a little bit the, the whole topic of today's presentation, so capturing uh, value from analytics. Um, and we'll go into a little bit more of this in a bit more detail shortly as well. But what we find is that that second half of the, of, the, of, the, of the process is typically the hardest. So really thinking about how do you get the recommendations in a way that's user-friendly for, let's say, agents to engage and actually make use of them, and then also became, making this more of a day-to-day -day operation. So today we'll dive into a couple of use cases now. Um, so in, in specifically, we'll touch on retention, pricing, as well as claims. Um, but there's two areas we probably won't have the time to get into, but maybe just at a high level just to talk through it. Um, one on lead generation and cross-selling. Again, typically a use case that many insurers uh, prioritize is one of the early ones. Um, and we see, we see many different ways of, uh, of how insurers are approaching it. Uh, in one life insurance example we've seen, um, they developed a, a machine learning algorithm and pushed recommendations to agents via a mobile app that they customized, built together with the agents, so that it had the right sort of feature that agents were looking for. Uh, in other cases, actually, a mobile app isn't, isn't, isn't the best solution. In different markets, we see web browser, web applications being a bit more preferred. Um, but in that particular case with the mobile app, we've seen a 33% plus increase in, in business sales. So examples of insurers capturing value are out there. Um, maybe I'll just I'll hand over to Uma to talk about servicing, and then we'll start going into a bit more detail of the use cases. Thanks, Reese. So. The couple of case studies we'll talk about, um, the one other one to highlight, uh, as Raish mentioned, is everybody's talking about analytics in marketing and sales, so how do you drive more sales or retention of customers, and of course, pricing and risk assessment. But 
the analytics and the data you have available can be used across the value chain. And servicing is one interesting example that's less popular. And in this, with this particular insurer, they were looking at digitizing a number of the customer journeys, right? Uh, but they didn't know where to start. So which customer journeys are most important? Which steps in the journey do you digitize and automate? One step approach, or one approach, of course, is to speak to customers and go through the design thinking approach, but they married that with, a, with an analytical approach. So they analyzed data and customer satisfaction scores across all of their customer, in, customer interactions and the different channels. And of course, is, uh, we live in an omni-channel or a multi-channel world, so people are switching between channels. And they use the analytics to figure out which journeys and which paths are actually going to drive up customer satisfaction. Uh, and they saw a 40%, so first of all, they migrated 40% of their customers' uh, journeys to self-service. Um, and the, of course, now that people are doing self-service, that drives costs down, and they've seen a 25 to $30 million uh, reduction in cost, and a 10 to 25 percentage point uplift in customer satisfaction. But let's, let's talk about some more detailed cases. So, first of all, on retention. Right, so this particular example is of a life insurer within a period of 12 months across lapse, withdrawal, transfer, surrender rates, they experienced 20 to 25% multiplicative uh, deterioration in those rates. Um, and they had, some, they had a retention desk, uh, but this desk was really very reactive, so customer had already filled in the form to do the transfer or surrender, and at that stage tried to engage the customer. So obviously success rate wasn't very high. So the solution here was to develop a model that was going to identify who are the highest, highest risk customers, um, and then, of course, engage those customers and figure out what's the most effective way to save them. Um, so with this insurer, we looked at 200 different variables, 15 different data sources where the actuaries actually had not combined this data before. So, of course, policyholder data, uh, product uh, data, but also some data on the, on the agents and whatever we could get from their CRM through call center interactions, complaints, data, and so forth. So this is all data that this insurer already had uh, access to. Um, and I'll show an example of how this kind of model outperforms traditional techniques uh, in a moment. But in this particular case, how, just to understand how this model performs, so in this particular, uh, in this life insurance case, an XG boost algorithm was the most effective. I won't go into the technicalities of that. Uh, but essentially, if you were to sort of look historically over the last two years of every customer that went uh, into some kind of a retention event or churned, put, put that in a pool with your entire customer base, right? So if I were to randomly pick out 10%, uh, a 10% sample of that population, I would roughly have 10% of the churn cases. But using this model gets us to, in that, in that sample of 10% and using this model, we'd actually identify 41% um, of the of the churn cases, so that's that's what we call a gain curve, right? So that's the power of what we're doing. It's obviously better than random guessing. In a moment, I'll show how that's also better than a GLM or a lot of internal techniques. So what did we actually do with this? So to Raisa's point of half of the effort, one part of the effort is getting the getting the best data and getting a very good performing model, but the other half is what do we actually do with that output? So in this particular case. We took the model output, prioritized, so we can't even with, you know, with a sizable customer base, we can't even call all high-risk customers. So you need to prioritize somewhere. So we put them on a matrix of high-risk and high-value. So we had a measure of customer lifetime value. 
And then we designed a number of pilots that we would test uh, to figure out what's the most effective way to save which kind of customer. And then we passed that on to a, to a save desk. Now, of course, like in the world we live in in South Africa, most of our life insurers have tied agents, and they, they believe it's their customer. The insurer doesn't own the customer, so you can't just call up their customers, and even more so when you've got a, an independent sales force. So the arrangement or the agreement we had with the agents was, first, we would inform them of high-risk, high-value cases, right? And they would need to feed back the information. So Raiz mentioned an example of a mobile app being used for this. In this particular case, we had a web tool for the agents to, to, to send the retention risks, and then they would say, okay, I'm not interested, or I've spoken to the customer, or this customer is indeed at risk, and I'm, this is what I'm doing. Um, but we had an SLA to say, if, this customer, if the agent doesn't act on that high-risk case, high-risk, high-value case within three weeks, then this desk would call the customer directly. Right? So we had a, uh, call center agents who were calling the agents to remind them and also calling customers directly. Of course, where we had a lot of success with this was also with orphaned customers. So a lot of customers who um, the company had not interacted with for years could then be reintermediated. And there's always the fear of why wake the sleeping beast, right? So why call a customer who might have forgotten about their cover? Um, and in turn, as you're collecting data, you can also model and figure out who are the customers you should just leave, right? And, and have them enjoy their cover and not remind them of it. And then there are customers who you actually do want to uh, intervene with. Okay, the impact in this case was a 30% a a multiplicative reduction in the lapse rate in our control group, and that was, we're actually experiencing a much, much better uh, improvement uh, now that we've gone completely live. And of those orphan customers, 50% of them have been reintermediated. So that makes the case for, we're not really waking the sleeping beast, right? So by engaging this customer, that's a high-risk customer, so that customer was going to churn anyway. Another example of a motor insurer in North Africa. So. Uh, in this particular market, uh, it's compulsory third-party liability uh, motor in insurance, and you could buy a three-, six-, or 12-month contract. In this market, there's basically very little loyalty. Every six months, one-third of the customer base would churn. Right? So these people were just bleeding and writing new business uh, all the time. Um, they had a decently performing regression-based churn prediction model, right? Of course, we, we improved that by using some machine learning techniques. Uh, but what was more valuable here is how we looked at the overall picture, right? So, of course, similarly, we had the output ranking, in this case, of about 600,000 customers, put that in a matrix of high value, high risk, um, and then designed a, a combination of which channels we'll engage these customers with to remind them to renew their contracts, right? Including WhatsApp reminders, automated, how frequently do you contact the customers, and then offered some incentives to the agents um, and, to, uh, and to the back office. So often, it's the secretary that controls the, the schedule and setting up the meetings for the agent, and they're the ones you need to incentivize to prioritize renewal cases as opposed to new business cases. Um, and then we, we set up a number of enablers, scripts, and so forth to help with the, with the overall process. One I want to highlight is a retention management tool that we uh, then developed uh, for these agents and their back offices as well. And as Raiz said, this business integration, so one step, the step number four was business integration, step number five was the adoption. So for the integration, we fed all that data and, those, uh, and the output of our modeling uh, into a, a web-based tool 
that would basically highlight to the agent, okay, these are the 15 customers who are up for renewal in the next couple of weeks. These are the people who are, these are, these are the customers who are at most risk of leaving and who are high value. Um, this is how you're performing over the last month. So there's a bit of gamification where agents can compete with each other. Um, and you track the interactions from here, right? So if it's a mobile app, you can even have the agent dial the customer out from the app, and then you've captured that, that attempt at making contact with the customer. In this case, uh, the agent has to manually capture um, whether they've acted on it or not. Uh, but that allows you to close the loop, right? And now you can use, as you're collecting more of that data, you can include that in your models as well. One other important point was, so to develop these churn models, there's a lot of data we have on the customer. So why not put that data in a usable format uh, in the hands of your frontline or your sales force as well? So if you were to click in, this, in the actual tool, if you click on any one of these um, retention cases, you actually get a full 360 view of the customer. And with, with the help of some designers, we actually could craft little stories about the customer and why we think they're at risk uh, of churning. So another example, uh, value-based prospecting. So this is a European insurer, 100% uh, online insurer. Um, so their problem was, so they were not very profitable, combined ratio in the market they're in of 117%, pretty high. Um, and the, main, the underlying problem was their acquisition cost was very high and partly driven by the fact that they had to acquire new customers all the time. So they were not, similarly not renewing. So we developed uh, another churn model, converted that into a customer lifetime value model, and then added a competitive pricing uh, layer to that as well. So on the actual churn prediction model, here you can see uh, one of the sort of more common machine learning techniques, a random forest, by far uh, outperforming general, uh, GLMs, general, generalized additive models, and the internal uh, model that, the client, that this particular insurer, and, insurer had. So that was a combination of a GLM and a table-based approach. Thank you. Um, so that's an example of how, you know, how much improvement you can actually get from this type of model. So the Gini coefficient, uh, the, oh, the area under the curve is 88%. On the other cases, you're looking at between 60 and 70%. Um, how that plays out, what do you use with that information, right? So now you can categorize your customers into high lifetime customers with a churn rate of about 15%, all the way down to low lifetime customers who, um, in a, in a one-year cycle, churn about 45% of the time. Your acquisition cost is the same across these customers, and in this particular case, it's an online insurer, so a lot of their marketing cost is on digital marketing. Uh, but of course, now they can focus on the top two layers and completely avoid the type of customer uh, that you're expecting uh, to churn a lot. So uh, that would now depend on what kind of environment you're in, right? So do you have the right to decline cover? Can you hike up the price? Or do you simply just focus your marketing and your, your brief to your digital marketing team to focus on certain customer segments? One, uh, to, to bring in the competitive, layer, uh, com uh, competitive pricing layer, what we also did was we put this in a matrix of, on the y-axis you've got expected customer lifetime value, so that's the margin minus the acquisition cost and cost to serve, and the anticipated lapse rate. Um, and on the x-axis you've got um, how competitive are you in this particular segment. So this is all online motor insurance, right? So you can, you can scrape for particular segments, you can scrape your competitor prices. 
um, our aggregators in South Africa aren't the, the prices they're quoting online aren't necessarily as reliable to, to using this type of technique. But just to illustrate the point, um, what you can see is top, so top right hand corner, these are high lifetime value customers. You're also ranked number one in terms of pricing. So those are the customers you want to focus on, those segments. These are illustrative segments, by the way. Um, Top left, these are customers who have high lifetime value, but you're actually not very competitive. So this is where you could potentially reduce your pricing a bit to capture more of those segments. Bottom left is really what you want to avoid, low lifetime value, and you're also not competitive. So you don't channel any of your marketing spend uh, at those customer segments. One more example. Great, so moving a little bit further down the value chain, so focusing a little bit on claims. Um, so use case we wanted to share with you today was also for a motor insurer, just keeping the consistent theme. Um, and it was a motor insurer looking to better identify severe bodily injury claims early in the process. So today, they, and in this case, the, these severe claims accounted for about 5% of the volume, but more than half, up to 50% of the uh, total indemnity. Now, they had in place some reserving models that they were using to identify these claims. And in using these models, they were able to identify about 15% of the severe claims within the first 10 days of the notification of loss. And the real question was, how do we actually do that better? Um, and so as part of this, we helped to develop a severity scoring model, which used a combination of internal and external data, which I'll show you now, um, as well as a machine learning algorithm to better predict what exactly these uh, or at least at an earlier stage, which um, claims are likely to be severe. And what they found is, um, using this new model, they were able to predict up to 65% of severity claims within the, um, the first 10 days, and also were able to reduce claim settlement cycle time for by up to 8%. Um, so basically, faster processing of claims. So if we think about the value of a use case like this, so a couple of, couple of sources of value, really, right? So on the first one, being able to identify these high severity claims early on meant that you could route them to the more experienced adjusters or specialist teams as needed to better one potentially try and uh, uh, push for early settlement and also to reduce you know time to actually process the claim and handoffs between one person to the next. Um, the other side of that is if you're better able to predict high severity claims, the simpler claims you can also identify and try and do a much more automated processing of those claims. Um, and then, I mean, as part of that, also reducing the time spent on rework, so allocating to one adjuster, then afterwards allocating it to a, di a different adjuster, so thinking about handoffs and all the additional sort of time delays associated with that. Um, so in terms of the actual modeling, so combined data from a, a number of different sources. So you had the typical policyholder data, uh, claims data, of course, as well. Um, there was some external data which, that was used to supplement this, so census-level data. Um, and then also building on a little bit the point that Umar mentioned a bit earlier, trying to get some insights from subject matter experts on what other variables might be interesting. So things like pre-existing conditions or prior claims history also being added to the, to the data set. Um, so starting off with about 300 plus variables, um, after the model, uh, the model used about 100 variables, and we, this was built off about five years' worth of data. So following the claims progression over each year, so to see which ones eventually become or identified as uh, higher severity claims. So, if, so reflecting on the, the output of the model, 
Um, the original sort of reserving model was able to predict about 15% of the claims within the first 15 days. Um, at the highest accuracy threshold, the model was able to predict an additional 25% of, of uh, severity claims early on, and all the way up to 65%, depending on the level of accuracy uh, that was taken. And again, the idea is being able to then better route that. And just talking to this point again about workflow integration. So the model was one thing. The idea was how do you then actually integrate it into uh, the actual claims process? So uh, in this case, as soon as the claim came in, the idea was entering the claim information uh, to, to the severity model, um, assigning that to a particular adjuster based on the claim specifics, and then also providing some recommendations around uh, the estimated severity of the claim, um, which the adjuster could then take and, uh, and process further. So didn't replace adjusters, integrated with the day-to-day the -day work of the, of the adjusters. Good. Um, so with that, I'm going to hand over to Amar. Thanks. Um, another topic we often talk about in the analytics space is that of ecosystems and data ecosystems. So this is now starting to think a bit beyond the traditional data you have access to and the, the traditional use cases being implemented. Um, so we see a couple of, similarly, a couple of themes uh, bringing, about, bringing about change in the world. So on the one hand, you've got you know, mass globalization, uh, a, uh, an extreme focus on customer experience. It's all about customer, 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 design thinking being used all over the place. Customers becoming very impatient, right? Thanks to, uh, and by the way, th these expectations are driven by players outside of the financial services industry. So the experience people have on using social media, Facebook, Uber, uh, they now have this similar impatience when they interact with an agent or tr try to buy insurance online. Um, and everybody's got a sense of specialness. Everything is, you know, it's, it's about one-to-one -one pricing. I'm a segment of one. And at the same time, as we've been saying, the, the whole data revolution, cost re reduction in computing costs, wide-scale digitization, and open platforms. And this is, the result of this is a, a collapse of industry borders, right? So there's a lot of cross-industry competition happening. I, I mean, in South Africa, we see it already. Uh, MTN, Vodacom having life licenses. Um, so especially between telcos, banks, and insurers, there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, blurring of the borders uh, between these industries. So essentially what happens is in the traditional world, you've got an under, the, the wholesaler, right? So you've got an underwriter of the risk, and in between you've got intermediaries all the way to the customer. Now what's happening is these um, these intermediaries are being cut out. So, I mean, we, the biggest or the simplest example of that is direct insurance. Um, but more and more, this is happening across industries. And the goal of many companies is then to either be, well, or the question many organizations ask themselves is, will I be an orchestrator of such an ecosystem, right? So if I'm Google and everybody searches for whatever they're looking for through Google, why don't I start offering those services. So Google, once Google starts selling insurance, and there have been lots of talks about that already, um, the insurance industry gets, gets disrupted. And then in traditional insurers who don't jump on this trend are at risk of then just either becoming redundant or being wholesalers and just focusing on underwriting and pricing that risk, but don't own the customer interaction. So 
the kind of ecosystems, so McKinsey's, the McKinsey Global Institute has done quite a bit of research on this, um, and they've, they've sort of taken a view on what are the big ecosystems going to be. Um, and, and both on the retail and uh, both on the retail and institutional side, and it's all surrounded around. It's all about customer needs. What's the fundamental customer need? So it's it's mobility, it's housing, it's education, health, uh, and more and more you see orchestrators of these ecosystems popping up. Right, the obvious ones we know are Google, Microsoft, uh, Apple, but there are also some insurers who have started doing this and. One, one year at home, starting to go in that direction, discovery. Um, but certainly one famous case that we always think about globally is Ping An in China. So the regulatory environment allows for a bit more of this. So it's, it is a bit easier to share data between their different businesses. Um, but what you see Ping An doing is um, they facilitate different or they orchestrate different ecosystems, mobility, housing, um, digital content. How they do this is about 50% of Ping An's valuation is driven by their traditional insurance and banking businesses. And the other 50% is all about these customer interfaces, platforms, and apps. You can actually fill up about three of your iPhone screens just with Ping An apps. And it's online dating, online gambling, online shopping, peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending, peer-to-peer -peer payments. And they're crossing all this data, right? And now they're using that data in their tradi traditional banking and insurance businesses, right? Because now they can do better underwriting because they know if you're gambling. One interesting, very, one interesting insight they found was um, married males who were active on online dating sites were less likely to default on loans. <laughs> because the last thing you want, if you're messing around, the last thing you want is to have any kind of default on your mortgage or any kind of loan you've got, because that's going to you know, open a, lot of, a, whole, a whole bag of worms. Um, <laughs> so they, they, the way they work is, uh, or the way they think about it is, they offer these apps and, and customer interfaces to drive engagement, right? So they attract you, they offer free stuff, the app is free, you don't have to pay for it. Um, and so now they're, they're attracting and they're acquiring digital users. They convert them to start paying for stuff on those apps, and ultimately they retain those customers and cross-sell them in their traditional insurance and banking businesses. So that's how they think about it. Um, okay, uh, happy to entertain more questions about ecosystems. It's always a, a question, a topic we get a lot of challenge on. So one, just, Dave, how much time do we have? Five minutes. So one last topic we wanted to cover was what's the role for actuaries in this analytic space? Um, and how do you actually execute? How do you execute? Grace, I'll take this one, then you take the next one. So in terms of how do you think about executing um, on, on the analytics opportunity, and I mean, never mind the ecosystem opportunity, but just on advanced analytics, um, we think about it in four, uh, in, four, in, four in terms of four topics. I know the text is small. The, we will share parts of the presentation. Um, the first is... What's your roadmap, right? What are the 10, 15, 20 analytics use cases that are going to bring the most value? Right? We showed the 17 cases that Raise flashed with the impact numbers earlier. Typically, those are 17 cases that a lot of insurers start with. There's a lot more you can do, but start with a high value and easier to do uh, use cases and figure out you know, what's your roadmap to do that. So what's your, 
what's the business case, what's the vision, what's the roadmap, and what's the business case for that? And so can you justify it with real economic value and you're not just building models for the fun of it? Uh, the second is around organization and talent. So how do you organize these teams? So earlier I spoke about an analytics hub or an analytics center of excellence to create cross-functional teams. So it's not about actuaries sitting in an actuarial team and coming up with these models. We need to interact with other professions. There are people who bring other skills, right? There are agents who interact with customers daily. Let's make them part of the teams. Um, and then actually, how do you cultivate and, and attract this, the, this kind of talent? Uh, data and technology, of course, we need access to the data. We need to respect the laws around how we use that data and uh, privacy and so forth. And lastly, and we've spoken a lot about this, is execution. What do we do with the output of the models and how do we uh, drive uh, the customer behavior? So the, the kind of roles that are involved, so I'm talking about these cross-functional teams. Um, so you want a mix of technical and IT talent with data talent as well as business skills. So where do we see actuaries playing a natural role? So of course an actuary can become a data scientist. An actuary is not automatically a data scientist. So as much as we have the statistical uh, and mathematical grounding through our studies, um, often we don't have the programming skills or the experience in building a lot of these kind of models or playing around with these tools and, and data. But it's certainly not beyond our reach, right? Uh, I've seen, though, over the years, engineers, computer science and statistics majors be a lot more open to learning about these new fields than our actuarial colleagues. It, it is changing, right? Uh, but uh, I think there's a bit of catch-up that, uh, that we need to do. Uh, but there's another role that actuaries are very naturally suited for, and that is of a, what we call a translator role. So this is somebody who understands what's happening with the data and the modeling, uh, but also can understand the business problem. So how do we take the, uh, first of all, how do we understand, take the business need and translate that into something for the data scientists and the, the geeks to crunch? And then how do we ensure that what they've produced is actually usable uh, in the business? And I find that as actuaries, that, that talks a lot to the kind of skill, uh, to the kind of skill set that we've, that we've developed, right? There's a strong technical grounding, but also, uh, a lot of emphasis on understanding the end-to-end -end value chain, end-to-end -end business, uh, and bringing a bit of professionalism uh, to, to how we exercise uh, and work in, in that space. Race. <laughs> Super. And, uh, just conscious of the time, I'll very briefly go through this and we'll love to sort of entertain some questions. Um, so I think one of the other pieces that Umar touched on is the actual um, execution, right? So really thinking about how do you drive the adoption, capability building, and so on. And so one piece we see as pretty important to this is in the modeling that we're building, having something that is explainable rather than the highest predictive power. And this is quite often the, the trade-off you, you encounter as you're developing these models, right? On the one hand, you could, you, you could probably do something more complex like a neural networks versus random forest and get a higher predictive power. But when you're actually explaining that to the front line or, or business owners who are going to take over this, it becomes very complex. And it's, it, the explainability, is, it, it, it becomes a bit of a challenge, right? And without that, it becomes a bit harder to drive adoption. So quite often, you know, the focus is much more on what this, the, the right-hand side here, which we call explainable AI. So models that still have very high predictive power, um, but is something that it's less of a black box. You have visibility into what's inside. You're able to explain it. You're able to 
uh, continue to develop it going forward as well, given that as, as more and more data becomes available, you can t con uh, con consistently tweak it. And then, of course, what we're also seeing is an importance of being able to explain models to, to the regulator in particular cases as well. So, for example, when you think about reserving models or if you go back to the claims case as well, there, there, there's also an importance of being able to disclose the modeling and how you've done it. So, typically, the, the approach is to focus more on what we call explainable AI versus highest predictive power. Um, just... Uh and one last point um, that, that we think is also pretty important as part of the, this execution piece is ethics and ethics in, in, in advanced analytics. And I think that this is something that is going to be seeing, just, we're seeing a bit more of a push and focus on as, as, as this develops. Um, and, and what we've shared here is a little bit of where we see some of these discussions arising so far to date. Um, quite often, before we even start the modeling process, when we start with data, there's a lot of questions around what data can we use, for what purposes, um, which data can be shared with where. And I think that these are very important discussions you need to have very early on in the process, um, because if that wasn't had early on, when you think about execution, again, that's something that you might not even be able to implement some of the recommendations from the model. Um, on the actual modeling process, I think here again it's thinking about um, as you're actually doing the modeling, what are some of the considerations you should have? I think something that comes out quite often is this idea of, of uh, inherent biases as we're doing the modeling and drawing the conclusions. So this whole idea of how do you make sure that you, you don't have any inherent biases in the modeling and as you're producing the, uh, the results. And also uh, touching again on this point around how explainable is the model? Can people understand it? Can you explain it to a regulator as, uh, as needed? On the result side, I think there's also a big question about interpreting the results in the correct way, and then also using those results um, uh, in, in, a, in a way that is, was always uh, permissible based on the data that you're using. And then lastly, just in terms of action, right? So thinking a little bit about here, to what extent does human intervention also need to be applied as based on the recommendations from the model? Um, can you actually use the recommendations from the model for the purpose you're using it, uh, taking into account all sort of you know, ethical and regulatory um, uh, considerations? Good. Yep. I think this is, this is one particular area where we think there's an opportunity for actuaries to play much more of a role, right? So given our emphasis on professionalism and ethics, this analytics is right now, it's an unregulated space, right? And often I walk into an insurance company where there are some very sophisticated models being built, but nobody's around to actually challenge the data that's being used. Half the time, you know, executives are firstly way too busy, but secondly also don't have the skills to zoom in and you know, challenge a bit of the decisions being made, what data is being used, how the results are being interpreted, because it's complicated, right? It's just a bunch of code and the, the, some of these GUIs like in R, the, the charts are very difficult to interpret. Um, and so data scientists are often allowed to run free and then, you know, tell the story that the executives want to hear based on the analysis they've done. And as actuaries, this is an opportunity for us to bring more professionalism uh, to the analytics space. Thanks, gents. Uh, great talk. We have um, relatively little time for questions, unfortunately, so I assume there's a rov roving mic, so if you just put up your hand. 
So please, uh, as far as possible, try to keep your, your questions succinct. Uh, but also, these two guys between them have asked me lots of tough questions over the years, so please feel free to uh, respond in kind. Uh, thanks. I'll try to be succinct. So you spoke about the future and uh, tech titans. My question is, do we expect tech titans to become direct competition where they set up everything for themselves? Whereas uh, right now, insurers have uh, supply chains, compliance, and all these capabilities that tech titans don't have. On the other end, the tech titans have access to data, access to customer and superior tech. So do you expect them to become direct competition where we've got Google Insure, for example, or more partnerships between insurers and um, tech titans? Um, so absolutely, there's a hell of a lot of competition coming from the tech titans because they're going to own the customer interaction. Right um, uh, now, the question of whether they'll take on the burden of figuring out the underwriting is questionable. They have more data; they have access to more data than insurers, and strictly speaking, they shouldn't be allowed to share that data on their users. So it's still questionable whether they'll do the underwriting. But everything else, the compliance, the um, the reserving, etc., that's what they'll leave to the insurers. But effectively, that renders insurance companies to be wholesalers and not actually owning the customer interface. So Google is, there's already been a lot of talk about Google um, selling insurance products. Any other questions? Obviously the talk was uh, so comprehensive that you've answered them already. Um, uh, <clears throat> David Kirk. Hi guys, you mentioned briefly some of the discrimination issues and concerns on our pricing side. Would you apply uh, different rules on what you'd consider acceptable to discriminate on for a leads generation or renewal or persistency modeling where it isn't actually changing the price that the consumer gets versus a pure underwriting pricing algorithm? So the jury's out on this one. <laughs> it's a very tough question, right? So. Uh, an off-the-cuff answer would be if you're, if you're not actually changing the price the customer is paying, then you know, it's fair game and you can, and you can use whatever data is available. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's actually a lot of debate on this topic. Uh, and quite personally, I don't have a view as yet because right now I feel I can justify either point. Down in the front. What, what happens in a world where consumers own all their data in the future and tech companies uh, no longer control the full experience or, or no longer have all, access to all the data? I'd like to see that world. <laughs> um, so it's an interesting thought experiment because it's certainly not a world we live in and it's something we don't think we'll see in the next five to ten years. Um, uh, but this would certainly put the, the power in the hands of the customer where they only share the data they want. 
uh, but you're sharing a lot more data than you than you realize, especially with the watch on your on your wrist. Um, uh, yeah, the kind of data uh, insurers and telcos and banks have access to is unprecedented today, um, and the permissions we give knowingly or unknowingly when you're very impatiently scroll down to click accept, that's where it's all happening and you're signing off your data. But um, in a world where, where, where customers own their own data, there's also a bit of a downside to that, right? So there's a lot of innovation and personalization that's driven by the data that, um, that these companies or organizations have access to and they can actually tailor and offer better pricing to healthier risks. I mean, with some cross-subsidization still being needed, but um, there's definitely, there are definitely pros to um, making some of that data available as well. We've got a question in the middle. Thanks for the talk. I've got two questions. One of them uh, touches on the question asked in the front. I'm sure you're aware of the case between discovery and liberty. Uh, where essentially they're fighting against the data, who actually owns the data, EDC. Uh, do we foresee something like this happening in the future as more and more people get, get involved in the process? And now, let's say me as a customer, and if I want to intervene and say, look, this data actually belongs to me, it doesn't belong to discovery or liberty, how to decide on that? And the second thing is, as insurers, with the data, how we've collected the data was mostly to comply with regulation, you know? set out the, the reports ADC required by regulation. Uh, is that structure optimal for us to do the data analytics required, essentially? How we've actually stored the data and how do we make that leap forward in terms of changing the, the architecture of the data to more enable the data analytics? Witness, could you just uh, <coughs> reframe that's the second question? The first, first one was clear. What I mean is, okay, so I'm probably not very close to, to the data information, but normally you hear that data is actually like in silos. Let's say one department owns one part of data, another department owns another part of the data. And probably only a few of the data parameters do you actually store. So for example, if you are pricing on annuities, only on age and gender, and you throw away the rest of the data. And suppose it was more based on what's there in the market, it is. So how are insurance companies going to make that leap forward? able to say, okay, you know what, we're now going to break the whole, the whole processes we used to in the past. We now actually want to go into the data analytics part, you know, almost like trying to overcome the, the, the past which was there and, yeah, the data architecture around it, yeah. Um, happy to, maybe I'll tackle the, the second question, uh, just to add to that. So, I think, um, if, from what we've seen, at least from some of the use cases in, in Africa and in, in other regions as well, there's probably usually enough data to get started. And I think the idea is you can work with imperfect data and refine that over time. And then quite often, you mentioned this point around you know, data is also quite often in silos. One of the first steps is there's a longer term view of trying to break down those silos build together that comprehensive data set or data lake, and then use that for analytics on an ongoing basis. But in the short term, there's a way to actually access that data and already start developing the models with a longer term roadmap to kind of getting that more comprehensive data view. And I think just based on the existing data that insurers have, what we find is that 
insurers are also looking for more innovative ways to get access to more data beyond just what's needed for you know uh, reporting purposes. So I think discovery is a great example that that's uh, quite often talked about even beyond uh, beyond Africa as well around the additional sets of data from the Apple Watch etc that uh, they're able to get and then bring that build that together with the existing sort of data as you mentioned that uh, insurers typically would have. Um, so I think I think the message is that one. Um, it's, uh, you, you can already work with the data that, that exists. The idea is how do you, in the longer term, build a more comprehensive set? And then also, I think many players are trying to get more access to it, similar to you know, the terms and conditions like Uber mentioned. One of the biggest um, mistakes I've seen, perhaps I'm being harsh by calling it a mistake, but um, an, an inefficiency that I've of, often observed is uh, banks and insurers spending millions of dollars on setting up humongous data lakes and then somewhere along the line the project delays and it takes longer than expected and you know three four five years later finally aha the data lake is done and now let's start doing analytics so you haven't realized any value in the process so what we advise uh, what we what we prefer doing is that you in parallel start implementing a couple of use cases and build up the data required for those use cases and then scale up into your full-on your full data lake. And that way, it's becoming a bit self-financing. Um, although uh, I strongly agree with the point of start with the data you have, sometimes, especially in the rest of Africa, you do see some interesting cases where the entire customer database with an insurer in Kenya, the entire customer database was handed to us in an Excel file with 10 columns. That's all the data they had on the customers. But their application form uh, for an endowment or even a pure risk product was 15 pages long. And it was pretty well captured. So there was a ton of data, as you're saying, that's just going to waste. So the big effort we, we put in place for that in that particular situation was we sent, we took all that paper out of their stores and we scanned some of it, we shipped a lot of it to India and it was being captured. And now they have tons of data. <laughs> um, to answer your first question of who owns the data and will we, have, will we see more of these kind of fights and, uh, and challenges emerging? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, absolutely uh, it, it absolutely will happen. Um, in fact, uh, you already see this between agents and insurers, right? So the Moroccan, the Moroccan case I showed, um, a lot of the data we had on those customers were wrong or were actually the agent's data. So in Morocco, because the agents are kind of semi-tied um, and semi-independent, it's a bit complicated, but um, essentially the agent has all the information and they, can, they have a tool to do the pricing and then when they actually convert or confirm the sale, they can enter whatever information on the, on the uh, sort of um, new customer database. Um, and we, we engaged the agents and basically they said, well, why should I give you the information? Because you also have a direct insurance business. You're just going to pass it on and then you're taking my customer. So we had to, you know, engage, commit, <laughs> and explain what we're trying to do with the information and the data. And we actually showed and proved to them how we're going to help them write more business and you know, retain their customers with the data that we're using. And once they understood that and understood that, we've agreed that we're not directly engaging their customers unless we're doing it to help them. For example, in a retention case, um, they were more comfortable in sharing the information. 
Thanks, guys. I see one or two more hands, but unfortunately, we are well and truly out of time now. If you have unanswered questions, I'm sure the speakers would be happy to hang around for a couple minutes after to answer them. For the rest of you, it is now lunchtime. Would you just join me in thanking Umar and Rais once again? Thank you.